do want to read these uh, first verses. Uh, we're going to read the first five verses tonight. So we're going to read the first four again and then move on and include verse five. So five verses here at the beginning of Luke chapter one. Here's what we read. This is the very word of God. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Once upon a time, that's how fairy tales start. Uh, When you hear a story begin with the words, once upon a time, you know you're about to hear a legend, a tale, something that's largely fictional. Uh, Hans Christian Andersen begins his story, The Snow Queen, by saying, once upon a time, a beautiful fairy, the Snow Queen, lived on the highest, most solitary peaks of the Alps. Uh, He begins his story, The Princess and the Pea, by saying, Once upon a time there was a prince, and he wanted a princess, but she must be a real princess. And he traveled all around the world to find one, but there was always something wrong. When we come to the Gospel of Luke, and we look at how Luke begins these two volumes, Luke and Acts, we do not find the words, Once upon a time. And that's because Luke is not writing tales as Hans Christian Andersen did. Luke is a historian and he is writing history. He's writing about real people, real events within the space and time of this world. And as he begins his account in verse 5, what are his first words? So as he really jumps in there in verse 5, how does he begin? In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Luke begins... By connecting us to the time in which the events of his gospel took place. Uh, When Luke was writing, there were still people alive who remembered the days of Herod the Great. Luke is writing in the 60s AD. King Herod died around 4 BC. So he's writing about 64 years uh, after King Herod has died. And certainly some of the older folks still remembered old King Herod. When Luke speaks about the days of Herod, it would be like me speaking to you about the 1950s. Some of you remember the 1950s. Some of us don't remember it personally, but we know what life was like to an extent during the 1950s. So Luke expects that when he says, in the days of Herod the Great, most people have a sense. Oh, oh, yes, I remember what what life was like then. Problem is... You and I are now separated by 2,000 years from the days of Herod the Great. And so when Luke tells us that these events that he's about to reveal to us happened at that time, we need to kind of orient ourselves. And this is especially important because most American Christians seem to have very little knowledge about what happened 
in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you turn from Malachi to Matthew, you suddenly find yourself in a very different world. As I mentioned this morning, there were no Pharisees or Sadducees anywhere mentioned in the Old Testament. There were not even any synagogues. No synagogues in the Old Testament. Now, when the Old Testament ends, the Persians are the great rulers of the Middle East. We turn to Matthew and suddenly Romans are everywhere. They're the ones in charge. On top of all this, we come to the New Testament and find some Jews are now speaking Greek. And they are following Greek practices. Luke even writes his gospel in Greek. Not in Hebrew like we might would expect. So our message this evening is more teaching than preaching. And the aim is to bring us up to speed on what occurred over the 400 years between the death of Malachi and the days of Herod the Great. So that we'll be ready for this gospel. I'm calling this sermon the years of silence. And I'm calling it that because more than anything else, this is what marked the four centuries between the two testaments. During these 400 years, there was no prophet of God in Israel. There was no man raised up by God to deliver a message from him to his people. It was as if the lights went dark and the sound was turned off and all the people could do was wait. Would God speak to Israel again? Uh, what about his promises of a, of a Messiah? So some waited with eager expectation. Some uh, wanted and longed for God to speak again. And some even came along claiming to be that promised Messiah. Many others did not wait at all. They turned their backs on their heritage. They threw aside the Old Testament and the covenant with God. And they followed after the more appealing ways of the Greeks and the Romans. So I have four headings. And the first one is this. We're going to talk first about the days of Malachi. The days of Malachi. And we're going to move very quickly through these headings. So what's going on with Israel when the Old Testament ends? Right? Here we go. Number one, the exiles have come home. The exiles have come home. So remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel, 10 in the north, 2 in the south. The 10 in the north were conquered by Assyria and forcibly relocated to other nations uh, where most would intermarry. And through this intermarriage, the 10 tribes of the north were largely lost forever. But there were two tribes still in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And then there were Levites mixed in with them as well. These were taken into exile by the Babylonians. When the Persians defeated the Babylonians, you remember Cyrus the Great allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. And so when the Old Testament ends, the Jews are not mighty. The Jews are not numerous. But at least they finally have arrived back home. They've been severely judged for their sins. They've experienced great tragedy. But at least they're back finally in their homeland. So number one, the exiles have come home. Have come home. Number two, uh, the temple has been rebuilt. 
So the Babylonians had come in and they had destroyed that great temple made by King Solomon. Uh, the, the temple of King Solomon with all of its gold, with all of its treasure, with all of its beauty, it had been razed to the ground by uh, the Babylonians. So now these Jews who return to their homeland construct a replacement temple, a new temple where they can once again fulfill the sacrifices and the offerings that were commanded in Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. This temple is nowhere nearly as grand as Solomon's temple. Uh, those who remembered Solomon's temple wept when they saw how pitiful this one was going to be in comparison. But at least Israel's back home and a temple has been rebuilt and that's setting the stage for Israel to begin anew with God. Uh, they have failed to keep the covenant that they made with God at Mount Sinai. God's judged them. Now they get another chance. Now they kind of get a, a fresh start. Right? We're back home. We've got a new temple. This time, we're going to follow our God and we're going to keep the covenant. Third, some of you learned about this in Sunday school this morning. The walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. That was very important because Israel was once a nation with many walled cities, and now Israel struggles even to build a wall around her most important city, Jerusalem. Uh, we see how, how low Israel has been brought, uh, that they're struggling even to get a wall built around Jerusalem itself. A city without walls is open. A city without walls is vulnerable to attack and has very little security. And so Nehemiah leads the way. And the people overcome great obstacles. They complete this, this wall. All right, number four. The Samaritans are appearing. The Samaritans are appearing. So the Samaritans are going to have an important role to play in the book of Luke. We're going to keep hearing about these group of people called the Samaritans. Well, who are they? Well, remember, the ten tribes of the north were forcibly relocated out of their homeland and other pagan peoples were brought and placed in the north. The north in Luke is called Galilee. Jesus is going to live in, in the northern kingdom. But when the Assyrians came and took the northern tribes out, they brought pagan peoples in and planted them there. Uh, the legend says that God sent lions among these pagan peoples causing them to appeal to Assyria, asking that a priest of Yahweh might be sent to them so they could learn how to worship the God of this country. Some of the relocated northern Jews somehow managed to find their way back home, and then they began intermarrying with these pagans. And so when we get to Luke and we're meeting these Samaritans, the Samaritans are this mix of the pagans that the Assyrians brought into the north and the Jews who returned home to the north, who intermarried and created this kind of mixed breed group of people called Samaritans. They developed their own religion. They claimed that they descend from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. They claimed that the real place of worship is not Jerusalem, but is Mount Gerizim in the north. They developed their own version of the first five books of the Bible, and they claimed that their version is the true version. And throughout the final years of the Old Testament, there is constant fighting between the Jews in the south and the Samaritans in the north. 
And so that's why you're going to see all of this hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans when we get to the Gospel of Luke. Okay? Number five, what's happening at the end of the Old Testament? Esther saves the Jews. So we have the great story of Esther. Uh, You'll remember that the Persians are in power. And as the book of Esther, in the book of Esther, we learned that the Jews found themselves in danger of extermination. Basically, a Jewish genocide was being planned. And God raised up Esther, the Jewish queen, for such a time as this. And God worked through her courage to save the Jews. And then finally, sixth, Malachi, number six, in these last days, Malachi calls... The people of God to remember their covenant. We are many, many, many hundreds of years after Mount Sinai, but that is still the covenant. That is the covenant. Remember with the the mountain shaking and and there was fire and and the the people saying, Moses, you speak to God. Don't let him speak to us again or we might die. And it was there that they entered into covenant with God and said, we will be your people. God, you be our God. We will follow you. And God said, you know, if you enter this covenant with me, if you honor me, you will be blessed. But if if you turn after other gods, you will be judged. And Israel knowingly entered into this covenant, and that's why they've been judged. And now they're getting a fresh start. And Malachi comes on the scene, and already it isn't going well. Already with a brand new temple and fresh walls, the paint's still drying on the walls of Jerusalem. And already the people are running into sin. Already the people are, are, you know, Nehemiah comes along. He can't believe they're intermarrying with pagans all over again. And and so Malachi comes and says... uh, You need to remember the covenant that we have made with God. Uh, Malachi 4, in particular, should hover over us as we begin Luke's gospel. Because in Malachi 4, Malachi promised that a great day is coming. A day called the day of the Lord. And he says this day will bring about the destruction of God's enemies. But he says that for those who fear him... The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. God says to Malachi, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And then Malachi 4, the end of the book, ends with these words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Those are the last words that Israel hears from God for 400 years. I'm going to send a prophet. I'm going to send Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. You need to remember the covenant that you made through Moses. And if you do not turn... I will come and I will strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's it. 400 years of silence. Y'all with me? Those are the days of Malachi. Now, what happens after the Old Testament ends? So our second heading is Alexander and the Greeks. 
try a better mark. Alex and the Greeks. Ignore my terrible handwriting. Okay, Alex and the Greeks. So now we're in the 330s BC. King Darius III is ruling the Persian Empire, and the Jews, like most other Middle Eastern peoples, are under the power of the Persians. You remember the first King Darius. That's the King Darius who threw Daniel in the lion's den. Okay? This is not that King Darius. This is a later Darius, Darius III. But Alexander the Great is rising up, and the Persian Empire's days are numbered. Alexander the Great has the city of Tyre surrounded and besieged. Now, Tyre is north of Israel. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's in the region of Lebanon. And Alexander sends messengers to the high priest in Jerusalem. And he demands that Jerusalem send some fighting men and provisions to help his army. So the Persians are in charge. Israel's under the power of the Persians. But Alexander the Great's trying to overthrow the Persians. And in the middle of one battle, Alexander the Great sends a messenger to Jerusalem that says, send fighting men, help us overthrow the Persians. The high priest is a man named Jadis. And he sends word that he has made a promise to King Darius that he will not take up arms against him. He will not send fighting men to help Alexander. This makes Alexander the Great very angry. And he declares that as soon as he is done destroying the city of Tyre, he is going to go to Jerusalem and he is going to get his revenge. Then Alexander the Great is approached by Sanballat, the leader of the Samaritans, who says that the Samaritans are ready and willing to declare Alexander their king and to support him. And they will join him in helping destroy Jerusalem. The Samaritans were happy to join in bringing destruction on the south. All they ask in return is that they be allowed to build their own temple on Mount Gerizim in the north and so that they won't have to go to Jerusalem to perform their sacrifices. They even begin to teach that Mount Gerizim was the original location of Solomon's temple and not Jerusalem. I'll just remind you, remember the woman at the well who comes to Jesus and she says, my people say we should worship here at the temple on Mount Gerizim, and, and your people say, What's the, that's where that's all coming from. She was a Samaritan woman. She was coming out of that religion. Um, it's at this time, under Alexander the Great's influence, that the Samaritans begin to build their temple. Well, by the time Tyre is defeated and Alexander is on his way to get his vengeance on Jerusalem, it's clear to everyone that Jadis has backed the wrong horse the Persians are going to be defeated, and pretty soon Alexander and the Greeks are going to be in charge. And listen to Josephus tell what happens as Alexander the Great and his armies approach Jerusalem to get their revenge. Josephus says, Jadis the high priest was in agony and under terror since the king was displeased at his foregoing disobedience. He therefore ordained that the people should make supplications and should with him an offering sacrifice to God to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon them. God warned him in a dream that he should take courage and adorn the city and open the gates, that the rest should appear in white garments, but that he and the priest should meet the king in the garments proper to their order without the dread of any ill consequences which the providence of God would prevent. 
In other words, according to Josephus, the high priest is in terror. He tells the people, you need to start praying now that God will deliver us from the hands of Alexander the Great. And in a dream, God says to him, don't worry. As soon as Alexander the Great comes, open wide the gates. Welcome him into the city. Have all the people receive him with cheering and have them all wear white robes to show that they're honoring him. And and you wear your priestly robes and welcome and all will be well. Josephus says, when Jadis understood that Alexander was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priests and the multitude of the citizens. And when the Phoenicians and the Samaritans that followed Alexander thought they were about to have liberty to plunder the city and to torment the high priest to death, the very reverse of that happened. Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments... And when he saw the priest clothed in fine linen and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing with his mitre on his head, having the gospel plate whereon the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself and adorned that name and first saluted the high priest. The Jews also did all together with one voice salute Alexander and come around him. In other words, what nobody believed would happen would happen rather than the high priest having to bow before Alexander the Great. At least according to Josephus, Alexander the Great comes in and salutes the high priest. To put the rest of the story succinctly, Alexander's men could not figure out why he let Jerusalem off the hook. They could not figure out why Alexander the Great didn't just destroy the city and even more why he dared salute the high priest in Jerusalem. But Josephus says that Alexander shared with them how he had seen the high priest in a dream. And in that dream, this man told him how he was one day going to rule over Asia. He said he was not saluting the high priest, but the God the high priest served. And then we're told that the Jews showed Alexander the book of Daniel, which clearly taught that one day the Greeks would destroy the Persians. And Alexander believed that those words in Daniel's book spoke of him. And so he left Jerusalem on peaceful terms, believing that the God of the Jews had prophesied that he would one day rule the world. So the Greeks would then rule over the Middle East, including Israel, for more than a century and a half. Why is that important? Well, three points from this period of history um, as we come to Luke. Number one, as we've seen, the Samaritans begin their own competing religion. So Samaritans begin a competing religion. A, a false version of Bible history, right? That claims that, that actually Mount Gerizim was the true home of Solomon's temple, that David ruled from Mount Gerizim, not from Jerusalem, that the first five books of the Bible are a little different than they were for the Jews. We have a complete competing religion that's created by the Samaritans. Second, Greek culture begins to permeate Israel. In some ways, this is the most important thing that happens in the 400 years of silence. Honestly, most of the nations that were conquered by Alexander the Great quickly threw away their own heritage and embraced Greek culture. Greek culture was appealing, enticing, right? Uh, In Israel, Israel was was slower than the other nations to embrace Greek culture, and yet they were doing it as well. It was just very divisive. The people were split over the issue. 
Uh, Greek culture brought with it wonderful advances in math and in science and technology. But along with the great new inventions that the Greeks were bringing, also came the worship of the Greek pantheon. Zeus, and Apollo, and Hermes, and Artemis, and Aphrodite. The young people of Israel were especially attracted to Greek entertainment, right? This included the athletic events where the athletes competed naked. Uh, we have accounts of Jews trying to undo their circumcision surgically because they were embarrassed of their circumcision. The Greeks taught that circumcision was a blemish on the human body, which they celebrated and they idolized the human body. And so you had these Jewish young people who said, we don't like our heritage we want to be Greek. We want to embrace Greek life. We want to embrace Greek culture. Throughout Israel, there was suddenly a new interest in city life. Cities were a big deal to Greeks, and so city life begins to prosper. Theaters begin to pop up. Jesus is going to live in Nazareth. He's going to be just, just a, a, not even a day's walk from a major city with a major Greek theater uh, in the middle of that, of that city as he is growing up because of this. Uh, there's Greek literature popping up. There's Greek love for all the desires of the flesh. And so many Jews decided to put away their own heritage and to embrace Greek culture. And those that did that were called Hellenists. Everybody say Hellenists. Hellenists. Okay, you will see that word many times in the New Testament. That's what these are. These are Jews, typically Jews, who had embraced Greek culture. And they're called the Hellenists. Other Jews saw Greek culture as a threat. Uh, they said, uh-oh, Malachi told us to remember our covenant with God. If we embrace Greek culture, we're going to be turning away from that covenant again. If we embrace the worship of now, the, we used to worship the gods of Canaan. We used to worship Baal. Now they're wanting us to worship Zeus. But you know what? Different gods, same story, right? If we go worshiping these pagan gods, we can be sure our God will judge us yet again. Um, if the results the first time included the loss of ten tribes... And the exile of the other two, how do you think it's going to end this time? And Malachi had even said it, didn't he? Malachi had said that if the people did not listen, this time God would decree utter desolation. And so you've got the more progressive Jews who are like, we need to embrace Greek culture. We need to embrace new technology. We need to embrace the Greek pantheon. And you've got the more conservative Jews who are saying, whoa, 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 remember, our God is the true God. And we need to follow our God's ways. And then third... Uh, to remember from this time is that Greek becomes the predominant language. Greek becomes, um, I'm going to say Greek becomes the language of trade, right? It's the global language. It becomes the language of trade. So each culture often still kept their own language, but just like many people in the world speak English, for whom English wasn't actually their first language, but they have to speak English to get by in the world, so suddenly everybody had to learn Greek. Because Greek was now the predominant, thriving language of the world. Um, what was Jesus' native language? Anybody remember? Aramaic. Jesus spoke a language called Aramaic. So back when the Assyrians were in charge, back when the Assyrians ruled the Middle East, even before the Babylonians, before the Greeks, they had used Aramaic as their prominent international language. And it was during the reign of the Assyrians that Aramaic began to take hold over the Hebrews and become their dominant language. 
By the time you get to Luke's gospel, you have three languages being used in Israel. Jewish children still learned Hebrew. They had to learn Hebrew in order to study the Hebrew Bible and understand Hebrew scriptures. The children learned Aramaic. That was the language of the household, right? They grew up speaking Aramaic. And then in order to get by in business, they had to know Greek. So most Jewish people in the first century spoke Hebrew and spoke Assyrian, I mean Assyrian, and spoke Aramaic and spoke Greek. And that's what we're going to find uh, as we come to the New Testament. Okay, so we have the Greeks. Now, here's where we're going to begin to really hit close to where Pastor Merle was last Sunday night as he was teaching. Our next heading is called the Hasmoneans. Everybody say Hasmoneans. Okay, so we have now the Hasmoneans. Um, Alexander the Great was an amazing military leader. He was not a great future planner. Okay? Uh, when he died at 32, he died at 32 years old, he had not had a, in place a very good plan for what was going to happen with his empire. And so he gets left into four parts under four different generals. And you can imagine, suddenly you've got four generals, one over each different region of his empire, and they all begin fighting each other trying to determine which one's going to be dominant. Who is going to be the one who becomes the leader and takes over the rest? And Israel was right in the middle of all that madness. And so one of Alexander's generals was Ptolemy I. And for a while, Israel is under the rule of the Ptolemies, and they're based in Egypt. And it appears that some Jews were taken into Egypt as slaves, but honestly, for most Jews, life under the Ptolemies was pretty good. Now, it was not a bad time when the Ptolemies were in charge. Around 200 BC, the Seleucids, who came from Alexander's general Seleucus I, he conquered and took over. And Antiochus III was willing to respect Israel's religion and his way of life, but not his son, who we have been learning about, Antiochus Epiphanes. He came against Jerusalem in a vengeance. I want to read to you something a little different than what Merle read. I'm going to read from 2 Maccabees and just let you hear a little record of what happened when Antiochus Epiphanes came to Israel. When these happenings were reported to the king, he thought that Judea was in revolt. Like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met, to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. And so this is what Antiochus Epiphanes does to Israel. It's a terrible massacre. Jews still talk about it, remember it to this day, when Antiochus Epiphanes came in and wreaked havoc on Jerusalem. Antiochus decided that all the Jews needed to adopt Greek culture and Greek beliefs, and so he made the Jewish religion illegal. He came up to the temple. He dedicated it to the Greek god Zeus, and you'll remember that he sacrificed a pig. A pig on the altar there of the temple in Jerusalem. 
And the result was that the Jews who had been resisting Hellenization, the Jews who didn't want to go into Greek culture, they revolted. Simon Maccabeus led the revolt, and the Seleucids caught up in other battles. They gave way, and so uh, the Seleucids would still be technically the rulers over Israel, but basically they just kind of left Israel alone, and Israel would have her own leaders. And this began the Hasmonean dynasty. Um, it's basically going to last 100 years from 160 to 60 B.C. The Seleucids are just going to let Israel have her own people and her own leaders, and it's going to be very corrupt. Uh, very corrupt. Three key points. Number one, during these years, you have the beginning of Hanukkah. So after the revolt was over and Antiochus' men were driven out of Jerusalem, uh, the leader of the Jews, Judas the Hammer, uh, declared that the temple must be cleansed, that all new temple furniture must be brought in. Basically, after the, Tuesday, the, Tuesday, after the temple had been dedicated to Zeus, and after the temple had had a pig dedicated in it, uh, sacrificed in it, they said, we can't just keep using this temple. We've got to clean this temple. We have to sacrificially and ceremonially cleanse this temple before we can go back to using it again. And you remember the story that Merle told last Sunday night. The holy lamp in the temple was supposed to burn night and day. It was supposed to never stop burning, but it was only supposed to use a special kind of kosher oil. And all that could be found was a flask of oil that would last one day. According to Jewish tradition... Uh, while they were preparing the rest of the kosher oil, that oil that was supposed to last for only one day, it lasted for eight days, allowing the necessary time for the oil they needed to be prepared. And so that's the miracle the Jews celebrate during the eight days of Hanukkah. Second, more importantly, during this period, we have the rise of Pharisees and Sadducees. Y'all ever sing that song in Sunday school? I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. You ever do that one? I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad, you see. Yeah, okay, never mind. I grew up singing that song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so basically the Pharisees and Sadducees are kind of like political parties, but with a strong religious component. The Pharisees are the conservatives. Um, they looked at these Hasmonean leaders. They looked at, at these corrupt leaders who were ruling over Israel, and they had quite a lot of complaints. First of all, they're pointing out these people are being called king, but they say these kings aren't descendants of David. These people are not qualified to be kings. Second, these kings were also serving as high priests. In the Old Testament, are kings ever supposed to be priests? Priests ever supposed to be kings? No, those were, those were bound. Remember, Saul lost the throne because of that. Saul was a king who tried to be a priest, and God took the throne away from him for that. And yet suddenly you've got these kings who are also serving as the high priest. And the Pharisees said, that's not right. That's not what God told us to do. Third, the Pharisees saw very quickly that those who were in leadership were beginning to take Greek names they were educating their children in Greek culture. They were adopting Greek culture. Basically, now the Jewish leaders were becoming more and more like the Greek overlords. Uh, the Sadducees 
were more eager to partner with the Seleucids. Uh, they were willing to compromise on Jewish faith and practice. The Sadducees were the ones saying, we need to be progressive. We need to get on the right side of history. Right? You know, Greek culture is the way it's going. Nobody believes the stuff that we used to believe anymore. Uh, we need to give up on that. Do you see the way that history is going? We need to join with that. And so you've got the more progressive Sadducees. You've got the more conservative Pharisees. And these two groups are going to continue to oppose each other uh, for two centuries. And then third, during this time, we see the corruption, especially of the high priests. The corruption of the high priests. Remember, the high priests were supposed to be the, the men who set the model of holiness in Israel. The high priests were to be the ones who, who reminded Israel who they were as God's chosen people. And called them to be different from all the other nations. These high priests, they basically got their position by bribing the Seleucids. Whoever could pay the most money for the office became the high priest. They, did not, they were often not Levites. Uh, these men um, uh, basically uh, joined themselves with both positions of high priest and king. And so they were taking on both roles at the same time. The high priests were often very immoral men, having more in common with the ways of the Greeks than, with, uh, than faithful Jewish priests. There was one particularly wicked high priest who he partnered with the Sadducees. He refused to fulfill his priestly duties right at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, so the Feast of Tabernacles, the high priest was supposed to come out. He was supposed to perform a certain ritual. He refused to do it, and the people protested. So what did he do? He killed 6,000 of his own people right there in the temple courtyard. Josephus tells us that while this high priest sat feasting with his concubines, he ordered 800 Pharisees to be crucified in his sight. So here's the high priest of Israel with concubines feasting, and he has 800 of the conservatives, Pharisees, put up on crosses and crucified all around him. Um, before the men were dead, while they were hanging on their crosses, he had the wives and children of the men brought out and cut their throats before the eyes of, their, of the men. This is the high priest in Israel. So as we come closer and closer to the days of Jesus, what you see is just like before. Just like Isaiah and Jeremiah had said was happening in their day. So again, the leaders of Israel are wicked and corrupt in many ways, more wicked and corrupt than they had ever been before. We see them very much in league with the ways of the world around them. They are certainly not uh, guiding Israel in faithfulness to God. They're certainly not listening to Malachi who said, remember your covenant. When we get to the days of Jesus and we read about the high priests, these are not holy men. They're in a holy office, but they're not holy men. They're very corrupt, wicked men. Our last heading for tonight. How are we doing? We're okay. Our last heading for tonight is the Romans. So all this time, everything's been going Greek. And we see that culture has been going Greek. Language has been going Greek. And yet, here come, here come the Romans. The Roman Empire conquered and grew. And in 63 BC, 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey came and laid siege to Jerusalem which very quickly gave way. 
This means that as we come to the days of Jesus, there are Roman soldiers stationed in the cities. There are tax collectors who are now collecting taxes for Rome. Roman currency is now being used for business, though not for the temple tax. They still have to use a, a Hebrew shekel for the temple tax. But for everything else, it's Roman currency that's being used. Um, the culture, here's what you have to understand about the days of Jesus. The culture is still Greek. Okay? But it's now the Roman Empire that's ruling. In fact, if you remember, what did the Romans do? They just took the Greek gods and changed their names. Right? It's the same gods. Right? And so you see that it's still Greek culture, but now it's, it's Roman rule. In 40 BC, the Roman Senate named a man called Herod king over Israel. So when we talk about Herod the Great, Herod is called a king, but he's not like the highest one in power. Herod answers to the emperor in Rome. Herod answers to uh, the Roman Senate and to Caesar. And so he is there. Herod the Great is ruling Israel for Rome. It's interesting because Herod himself was an Idumean. That is, he was a descendant of Esau. So you have a descendant of Esau ruling over the descendants of Jacob. But Herod had been raised as a Jew. He claimed to be a true Jew in his faith. But Herod was a true Roman politician. Um, we'll talk a little bit about this last week, too. He had ordered assassinations to ensure his political survival. Uh, Herod kept a bodyguard of 2,000 soldiers. Uh, their full-time job, all 2,000, was to keep him safe at all times. He was constantly sending very lavish and expensive gifts to Rome to keep the favor of the Roman leaders. Uh, he and Cleopatra, down in Egypt, held a monopoly on the asphalt that was being mined out of the Dead Sea. And so he became very, very wealthy in that partnership. He was a very rich man. But Herod spent a great deal of money on public projects. He used cutting-edge Roman technology to build a city right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and he named it after Caesar. So it's a city named after Caesar right on the sea. It's called Caesarea Maritime. Where did we say Paul was kept in prison for two years? Right? That's Caesarea Maritime. That's a city that Herod the Great built. Herod built magnificent fortresses, Masada, Herodium, Alexandrium, Hyrcania, and Kairos. He built new cities in Israel intended to serve the rising pagan population. That is, he started creating cities just for those Jews who wanted to embrace Greek culture. Cities with uh, theaters, cities with stadiums for athletes to compete in. He was trying to help Israel become Greek. But his greatest project of all was his complete renovation of the temple. Remember, we said that this second temple was nothing to look at compared to Solomon's. Well, Herod changed all of that. Under Herod, the temple in Jerusalem became one of the wonders of the world. Uh, it was massive in size. There was gold everywhere. It was a major tourist attraction, even for Gentiles. Even in our day of skyscrapers, the temple complex, with the temple itself at the center, sitting on the temple mount, it would have been a sight to cause great awe. You remember the scene in the Gospels where the disciples were with Jesus, and they're, and they're just looking at the stones, and they're just, their mouths are dropped, and like, Jesus, look at this, right? Look, look at this, because it was such an amazing sight. 
The renovations of the temple began in 19 BC. And basically, Herod took the whole thing down to its foundation. And he basically started all over again. We call it a renovation, but I mean, it was almost a completely different, brand new third temple. He began the renovation in 16 BC. It actually wasn't completed until 30 years after Jesus' death. It wasn't until 63 AD that it was finally finished. And in 70 AD, what happened? It was destroyed. So they spent decades and decades and decades building up this temple, and then it stood for seven years, and the Romans came and destroyed it. Herod paid for it all by heavily taxing the people of Israel. This was why tax collectors were greatly hated in Israel. Um, despite the fact that Herod was rebuilding the temple, making it nice, most Jews hated Herod, and they hated him because of the way that he taxed them and because of the way that he treated them. Um, Herod was not so great in the eyes of the people of Israel. As Herod got older, he became more depressed. He became more paranoid. Um, this is the Herod that is going to order the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem. And we'll stop there because we're going to share more about Herod uh, in the days ahead as we go along. All right. So what is the point of all this overview? Well, one, it helps us get a sense of all the trouble and all the turmoil that Israel experienced leading up to the days of Luke's gospel. These were 400 years of silence from God, but they were not 400 years of peace. These were 400 years of insecurity, 400 years of being conquered by different peoples, 400 years of deaths and massacre, 400 years of turmoil that have happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, this helps us understand why there's hostility between Jews and Samaritans, between Pharisees and Sadducees, between Jews and Romans. And we're going to see all of that tension as we read through the Gospel of Luke together. Second, it helps us to see that we're not coming into a period of history in which Israel is being faithful and obedient. There was a faithful remnant of Jews in Jesus' day, but they were the minority. Interestingly, we do think they were mostly in Galilee. So there's a reason that Jesus spends a lot of time in Galilee. There does seem to have been a faithful remnant of people who cared about the Old Testament, who wanted to keep the covenant with Moses, who trusted the true God. There was a faithful remnant, but they were the minority. Most people in Israel were either Sadducees embracing Greek paganism, or they had swung back the complete other way and become legalistic Pharisees. That is, they had said they'd gone the conservative way, but they had gone so extreme that for them it was all about Law keeping. It was all about we can't embrace Greek culture, so we need to do everything we can to keep every letter of the law of Moses to the point that, remember, the Pharisees had created 600 new laws to help make sure that you were keeping those laws. So you've got that dynamic going on. Uh, third, it reminds us that in the midst of the Greeks, in the midst of the Hasmoneans, in the midst of the Romans, in the midst of all of this, there had been no prophet from God. These were the years of silence, and that's what makes Luke 1 so exciting and astounding. Because suddenly, an angel appears to Zechariah in the temple and says, Remember that one that Malachi talked about 400 years ago? He's on his way. And he's coming to prepare the way for the one. And finally, all of this just reminds us that the gospel of Luke is not a fairy tale. Luke's gospel is not a once upon a time. Luke places his account of the life of Jesus in this timeline of real events 
in the days of Herod the Great. And so the account of Jesus is history. The miracles are history. The crucifixion is history. The resurrection is history. These are facts as true as the reality of us being together in this room tonight. So let's receive this account from Luke. Let's receive this word as what it is. Not legend, not myth, but unvarnished truth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Father, we 